Eight of the Republicans running for president meet tonight for their first debate. Former president and frontrunner Donald Trump won't be there. It's Wednesday, August 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, more than 115 people are now confirmed dead from the wildfires in Maui, and officials on the Hawaiian Islands say more than 800 remain missing. Also, opening statements begin today in the trial of three men accused in a failed plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And this hour, the Dutch startup called the Tesla of e-bikes has gone bankrupt. Now its customers are stranded. Not all the parts are built anymore, so if something breaks like the e-shifter, uh, you're screwed. In sports, Red Sox lose in Houston, sunny in the 70s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The first 2024 Republican presidential debate is tonight in Wisconsin. Eight candidates are expected to be on the debate stage in Milwaukee for the event organized by the Republican National Committee. Chuck Hornbuck with member station WUWM says former President Donald Trump remains the frontrunner for the party's presidential nomination, but he won't be taking part in this initial debate. Trump is skipping the Milwaukee debate in favor of an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Carroll University political science professor Lily Gorin says that will change things for the eight Republican candidates who are debating. Some of the candidates having greater exposure on the national level and also to some degree what they may say in regard to former President Trump. The Democratic National Committee says the debate will introduce America to an extreme slate of candidates. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. Officials in Hawaii say more than 1,000 people remain unaccounted for in the aftermath of the wildfires on Maui. The official death toll remains at 115 as efforts continue to locate additional human remains in the charred rubble of buildings. NPR's Jennifer Ludden says authorities are asking relatives of the missing to submit DNA samples to help identify additional victims of the fires. The FBI is leading this effort. At a news conference, an agent reassured people their DNA would not be used for anything but matching with the remains of wildfire victims. He also said samples from multiple family members is best. But the fire in the historic town of Lahaina was so intense, some DNA analysis might be difficult. Maui Police Chief John Pelletier said they may not find everyone who died. When this is all said and done, realistically, let's be honest here, We're going to have a number of confirmed. We're going to have a number of presumed. The county did reveal the names of eight more victims, almost all seniors. Jennifer Lutton, NPR News, Maui. Ethiopia says it will work with Saudi Arabian authorities to investigate allegations by Human Rights Watch that Saudi border guards killed Ethiopian migrants. Michael Koloki has more. A Human Rights Watch report claims that between March last year and June this year, Saudi Arabian border guards killed hundreds of Ethiopian migrants who tried to cross into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. Ethiopia said it will work alongside Saudi authorities to investigate the allegations. Human Rights Watch claims that the alleged killings could amount to crimes against humanity. Saudi Arabian authorities have previously rejected the allegations. Michael Koloki reporting. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher at this hour. Dow futures are up about one-tenth of a percent. This is NPR News.
federal tax credits have brought down the cost of electric vehicles so much that leasing a new EV is now almost always cheaper than the equivalent gas-powered car. That's according to a new analysis from a think tank. As NPR's Camila Dominoski reports, upfront prices have been a big concern for buyers. EVs are cheaper to operate and sticker prices are dropping, but still, most EVs are priced higher than similar gas cars. The think tank Energy Innovation factored in tax credits and fuel costs for leasing or buying the gas or EV option. In nearly every comparison, the EV lease was the lowest monthly cost, not just over the lifetime of the car, but immediately. Of course, leasing means you never get the savings of a paid-off vehicle. But overall, the report shows an interesting consequence of federal policy. EV tax credits now come with strict made-in-America requirements, but those don't apply to leased EVs, meaning more vehicles qualify when leased, giving EV leases a leg up. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Sweltering hot and humid air is hitting the central U.S. today, prompting several states to open cooling centers. The National Weather Service has issued excessive heat warnings and heat watches from parts of several states from Minnesota to Louisiana. This as the remnants of Tropical Depression Herald brings the threat of heavy rains to the southwest. Crude oil futures are trading lower at this hour, down 1.5 percent to $78.38 a barrel. I'm Janine Herbst. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Sumner Tunnel will reopen in just over one week as planned. State transportation officials say drivers will be allowed back in the tunnel on September 1st. But that doesn't mean the reconstruction project will be done. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez explains. The Sumner reopening will come as a relief for people driving from East Boston into the city. But MassDOT's Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says there is more repair work ahead that will require additional closures for the tunnel. We're not done with closing the tunnel completely. There's going to be a number of weekends, uh, including some in September and October and, and uh, leading up until next year. The final phase of repairs to the Sumner is slated for next summer. Gulliver says once complete, the tunnel won't need any major repair work for at least 50 years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. State and federal leaders say the voter-approved right-to-repair law in Massachusetts will go into effect. The law was recently blocked by federal regulators. It requires car makers to give independent repair shops and owners wireless access to car computer data. That's so they can make their own repairs. Under a new proposal from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, access to that information could only be provided provided close to the location of the car. Tommy Hickey is the director of the Right to Repair Coalition. He says it's unclear if or when manufacturers would need to start complying with the law. Rescinding of their federal preemption stance is important, but it is unclear as we are in federal court awaiting a decision, but it makes sure that the A car owner can take their car where they choose, and there's a level playing field. The law was overwhelmingly passed by Massachusetts voters in 2020. The longtime producer of the Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals has died. Bob Jones began as a volunteer for the Newport Folk Festival in the early 1960s. He eventually served as its main organizer for more than two decades. Jones's family says he died last week while in hospice care at his home in Connecticut. He was 86 years old. It's 7.07. 
WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox lost to the Astros 7-3 last night in Houston. The teams will play again tonight. Sunny today. It'll be in the mid-70s. Clear overnight with a low near 60. Increasing clouds tomorrow and back to the mid-70s. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Most of the major Republican candidates for president will be in Milwaukee tonight for the first GOP debate of the 2024 race. Now, Milwaukee also will host the Republican National Convention next year, which is a sign of just how important the swing state of Wisconsin is. Donald Trump narrowly won Wisconsin in 2016 and then lost it in 2020 while pretending to win it. Tonight, Trump will not be on stage. The Republican frontrunner declined to meet his rivals. He will instead do a separate interview with the fired Fox News host Tucker Carlson while also preparing to surrender to Georgia authorities tomorrow to face his fourth criminal indictment. This one concerns his failed efforts to stay in office after his 2020 election defeat. NPR's Franco Ordonez covers Trump and the White House is in Milwaukee for the debate. Uh, Franco, the candidates have been campaigning. It feels, though, like this is the official start of the race for the GOP presidential nomination. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's a big day for Republicans. I mean, thousands of the party faithful are here. The weather's been nice. You're seeing the signs, the hats. You know, I've talked with folks from Arkansas, Florida, and Massachusetts. One, Ron Kaufman, he's a party representative from Massachusetts and a longtime GOP operative. Here's how he kind of summed up the mood. People like being here, and they're pumped. I wish all the candidates were going to be here, but that's not going to change anything. All right. He's talking about Trump uh, not going to be there uh, tonight. Uh, What does it mean that he's not showing? I mean, Steve mentioned some of it. You know, I mean, no question it puts a damper on things. People are not happy that he's skipping. But Trump says he doesn't want to prop up his rivals, being that he's so far ahead. And he really is far ahead. I mean, the campaign says Americans already know what kind of president Trump's going to be, so he doesn't need to sell himself like some of the lesser known candidates do. But it doesn't look, as Steve noted, that he's going to entirely see the spotlight. He did tease yesterday that he's going to be busy tonight. He has some counter-programming planned. You know, he has that interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson, which could run at the same time as the debate, which is also on Fox. And we mentioned earlier how Milwaukee is hosting the Republican National Convention next year. Why else has uh, that city become so important for Republicans? I mean, really, it's critical to both parties. President Biden was actually in Milwaukee last week touting his economic record, and his campaign just released a local ad doing much of the same. You know, Wisconsin is truly a state up for grabs. In the last two presidential elections in 2016, Trump won by less than 25,000 votes. Four years later, Biden did the same thing. So Republicans maybe see an opportunity to win it back? That's for sure. I mean, the Wisconsin State Party Chairman Brian Schimming says the big investment in Wisconsin for Republicans really is no accident. I always say Wisconsin isn't one of 50 states with this election. We're one of about five. And really, the White House runs through Wisconsin. You know, he really remembers when Wisconsin was considered flyover country. But now he says voters can run into presidential candidates at the convenience store. So how big then is the window for these candidates to make uh, an impression? 
you know, they really need to seize the moment. As we said before, they are way behind. You know, it is common for a candidate who does well in the debate stage to get a bit of a bump in the polls and also in fundraising. So it's a big moment, but it could also be short-lived. And that's because Trump announced he plans to travel to Georgia tomorrow and surrender to authorities in the alleged election interference case. So focus is likely to turn back to Trump soon, if it ever leaves him at all. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Can I just pose the question, what is the point of tonight's debate? What is the point? The presidential frontrunner is not there, which might clear the way for his rivals to critique him. But most of those rivals, not all but most, have so far avoided much criticism of a candidate who tried to stay in office after his previous election defeat and now has been indicted four times. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss has been following all of this. Michael, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you, Steve. Great to be with you. We do see a bunch of candidates on screen tonight. What do you think we have a chance to learn? Well, what we have a chance to do is, you know, tunnel through a lot of misinformation that is put out by various people and groups. Deep fakes, false videos are getting more accelerating. So, you know, this is a primary source where people can watch for two hours, see eight candidates, be sure this is really them, and take a look at how they react to one another. Sometimes frontrunners skip a debate. It's not unprecedented that Donald Trump would stay away because he thinks it would just give attention to his rivals. Uh, although never has an indicted frontrunner skipped a debate, so far as I know. How different does this feel from what's gone before? Well, you're right. Uh, Ronald Reagan was never indicted, but he skipped the first debate before the Iowa caucus of 1980, which he lost. And in retrospect, he thought that that was a big mistake because it gave people the sense that Reagan was really not up to his game. He was 69 years old. Uh, some of his opponents used the age issue against him. Hmm. So there will be a lot of talk about Trump tonight, but two hours You've got eight candidates, you know, dividing up the time at best. Maybe they'll get 12 minutes each. They will be jockeying for prominence and airtime. So whatever we see of any of these candidates is likely to be very brief, but it's better than nothing. Well, I'm thinking about the way that debates tend to be covered. Uh, those of us in the media, for better or worse, excuse me, I would argue for worse, tend to focus on the jabs and the one-liners and the, right. the scripted moments and the moments of, of apparent combat or, or seeming combat. But have there been cases in the past where the public has been able to see the substantive differences between their choices, something real about the way the country might be different under this or that person? Well, you have to go back, and you know where I'm headed as a wonderful Lincoln historian yourself. 1858, Lincoln-Douglas debates. They were both running for senator from Illinois. Each spoke for an hour. There was a 90-minute response, then a 30-minute response for that. The whole thing lasted three hours or more. So, yes, they were not brief and terse as tonight will be, but in three hours, you get a pretty good picture of what someone's going to do. I'm, I'm just trying to think through the numbers here, Michael. So an hour and a half for each candidate. We have eight candidates tonight. So if only it was a 12-hour <laughs> debate, we would really get right. some time with these people. No, absolutely right. Uh, and that would be the best way, but uh, that is not the year 2023, unfortunately. I am really interested in the substance of what some of the candidates have to say. I've been looking at their websites, and some of the, the, the campaigns, frankly, are rather thin on, on specifics, but a number of candidates are picking up 
constant Republican themes and ideas from the past about radically reshaping or cutting back the federal government. There's a couple of them that say they want to eliminate the education department, that they yep. want to eliminate a lot of federal funding uh, and give back to the state's money for health care and highways and a lot of a lot of different things. Is there an opportunity here tonight to see on the whole, a difference between the two parties, how the Republicans collectively would stack up against what Joe Biden has done over the last few years. Certainly, you've got a sample of eight Republicans who are running hard for this nomination. You know, you're gonna see very, as you know, very rehearsed performances. Uh, each of these candidates has been talking to advisors about tactics, how to get you know, recognized, how to attack certain other people who are threats to them. But you see them all together, and we will see patterns among them that perhaps we wouldn't see if they weren't all on stage together tonight. Is there an opportunity for some candidate to be um, reassuring rather than dramatic or extreme and essentially say the country would be relatively safe in my hands? Uh, there is an opportunity, but the way that this debate is arranged, it's not too likely because, you know, for you to get attention with all these people, as you know in life, oftentimes that doesn't happen by being smiling and reassuring. It's sort of, you know, the, the, the barking dog is the one who gets attention. And I'm not comparing the candidates to dogs, but what I'm saying is that there are all the rewards for someone who has a snappy attack line or a slogan that people will remember or who get into an exchange with someone and get the best of it, those are the moments that stand out in any debate, and they especially stand out in a debate with eight people. Michael, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure talking with you. really appreciate it. My pleasure always. Thank you, Steve. That's presidential historian Michael Beschloss. The Barbie movie is now one of the highest grossing movies of all time. NPR crunched the numbers and Netta Ulabi has the results. When the pink-clad audiences who've flocked to Barbie bought close to $1.3 billion worth of tickets, that put Barbie among the top 20 highest grossing movies ever. Not adjusted for inflation. Barbie in the real world. That's impossible. Nearly all of the other movies on that top 20 list are franchise-driven. They center the adventures of men, usually in combat. All right, ladies, let's bring the pain. Two Avatar movies lead the top 20 list at number one and number three. Avenger movies represent four of the top 20. The highest grossing list also includes two Jurassic World films and two Star Wars movies. I will finish what Luke started. At least Star Wars, The Last Jedi, features a female character whose journey is central to the story. It's one of only three films in the top 20 that do so. The others, Titanic and Frozen 2. But when the movie Barbie entered the top 20, it knocked one of the only other female-centric movies out of the 20th position. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Thanks to Barbie, the animated princesses of the original Frozen have been demoted to number 21. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Later on All Things Considered, during the time of COVID restrictions, many Americans found themselves feeling the loneliness that can come with isolation. Those feelings didn't just go away after the pandemic. Some ideas on how we can all feel more connected. 
Listen on your radio, your phone, or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, nearly three years after authorities foiled a bizarre plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the trial for the last defendants began this week. It's 720. How do you find deep happiness? Researcher Dacher Keltner says, find awe. Awe as powerfully as any state you can pinpoint, shifts you to being open and engaged and curious about the world. The science behind why we all need to seek and experience more awe. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A high near 75 today under sunny skies. Tonight it stays clear as temperatures fall to a low around 60. Tomorrow mostly sunny and a high back near 75. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. The writer, Prachi Gupta, comes from a family that appears a certain way from the outside. Many people, including within my own family, saw us as this picture-perfect Indian-American family. A father who's a doctor. My brother and I were very high-achieving. We graduated college with prestigious job offers. We really embodied the American dream. But at the very moment that we settled into that dream, when I thought that we would all sort of be happy, live happily ever after, our lives really began to unravel. And she's telling how, in her new book, they called us exceptional and other lies that raised us. She says her dad taught her from an early age to project a certain image. It would be a lifestyle that her and her brother constantly chased. Her brother going so far as to seek cosmetic surgery to lengthen his legs, a surgery that would ultimately kill him. He was 5'7", and he believed that if he had been... 5'9 or 5'10, 5'9 is the average height for an American male, that if he had been taller, he would have been treated with more respect. Hmm. And I wanted to understand how this idea came to him and what those two or three inches of height meant to him emotionally to drive him to do something so painful and so destructive. And that really uncovered this exploration of the intersections of racism and patriarchy and mental health and how these systems affect, you know, affected his perception of himself as a brown man in America. The book is a letter to your mother. Every page is written to her. Tell me why and what you're trying to say to her. 
So after my brother Yash died, um, I was thinking about mortality a lot. And I was thinking about how I'm the only remaining child left. And the thing that I wanted most in the world was to connect with my parents, but specifically my mom. You know, I see a lot of myself in her. And my relationship with my mom was really loving. My best memories are, you know, of childhood, of us just like playing and singing. And I wanted to reach out to her, but in real life, I couldn't do that because there were so many things that stood in the way of us being able to talk honestly with each other. One of them being the ability to acknowledge my dad's role in our relationship, seeing how my dad treated her, and then knowing that I was next in line for that treatment. Describe some of the things that you watched in the dynamic between your dad and your mom that stuck with you when you talk about, I was in line for that treatment. There's a moment where my dad throws my mom out of the car because she opens up a map too slowly and isn't reading the directions fast enough or clearly enough. Hmm. And in that moment, I didn't know if I was going to see her again. And then he picks her up, and then we just had to pretend like it had never happened, and we never talked about it again. And I think for the sake of maintaining the family unit, there was this pressure on me to put up with it, to accept it and to just forgive and forget. You write about the control your father had or the control he needed that was ultimately passed on to your brother a little bit. And in some ways there was a an anger towards women that he and your brother had when they didn't fulfill that perfect picture of what a man is supposed to be, right? Yeah. So they took a very different path than you took with the pain that they had inherited. What I saw with my dad and my brother was how racism really shaped their views on women as well. Like, especially like Asian men, South Asian men, they're put into boxes in white America about who they can be and who they can't be. And we all are. And one of the ways that manifests is racially, it's this demasculization, this this feminization So one of the ways to take back power when that happens is to then assert it over women in your life. And I think that, you know, that's not a rule for everybody, but I think that that's how these systems are set up. And if we're not careful, we can see those dynamics play out. And that's what happened in my family. And you were estranged from your brother because you identified as a feminist, right? He took offense to that. He did. And, you know, I think there was so much justified anger on both sides, but we personalized it so much. And I think that there were so many misunderstandings and miscommunications about like what feminism is and isn't. And also there was no accountability in our household for the dysfunction that we saw. And I think, you know, when we don't hold people accountable for their actions, we as individuals end up taking on that shame and the responsibility for their actions. So we blame ourselves You know, I think accountability, that enables repair and that builds intimacy. But escaping it and and creating these scapegoats, at first it can feel more comfortable to blame other people for these problems, but ultimately it breeds dysfunction and denial and keeps us sitting in that pain. Mm, And that's what happened with your family? Absolutely, yeah. Ultimately, you chose to walk away from that relationship with your dad and your mom because you couldn't continue in that cycle? 
And I tried so hard to be the daughter and the woman that my culture and that my society, I think, expected me to be and wanted me to be. But what I discovered was that it was never good enough. I could never be that way. I would have to always contort myself to reach some abstract, hypothetical idea of perfection that just didn't exist. Mm. And I was breaking myself in the process. So choosing myself wasn't really this rebellious act of reclamation. It was this desperate act of self-preservation. In many ways, I lost everything that I loved and cared about. And I have almost like nothing left to lose, which is part of why I'm doing this. And I want to warn other people about what can happen when we buy into the American dream uncritically, about what happens when we prioritize success, outward markers of achievement, instead of our internal peace. Prachi Gupta, her memoir is They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies That Raised Us. Thank you so much for this conversation, Prachi. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Hospitals in Illinois are seeing a surge of out-of-state patients who need abortion care and have medical complications. That's a problem in part because hospital-based abortions are more expensive and harder to manage. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia is blaming Ukraine for a series of drone attacks that left three civilians dead. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow says drone warfare has become increasingly common a year and a half into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The governor of Russia's Belgorod region said the civilians were killed after a drone struck a village near Ukraine's border. Meanwhile, Russia's defense ministry said a Ukrainian drone crashed into a high-rise in Moscow's premier financial district after being, quote, suppressed by air defenses. Yet it was the third time buildings in the area had been hit by drones in recent weeks. Surveillance videos showed a large explosion, and the boom from the blast could be heard in surrounding neighborhoods. The ministry said two other drones were down in the city's outskirts. As a result, flights were temporarily halted at Moscow's main airports for the fourth day in a row. Ukraine has not commented on the drone incidents, but they come as authorities in Kiev said Russia unleashed its own wave of drone attacks on the Odessa region. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The first Republican presidential debate of the 2024 campaign is tonight in Wisconsin. Eight candidates are expected to be on stage in Milwaukee. Former President Donald Trump won't be one of them. He's skipping the debate to do a sit-down interview with conservative commentator Tucker Carlson. Polls show Trump remains the clear frontrunner. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new report finds that black and Hispanic residents in Massachusetts use hospital services more than other groups. The report from the Center for Health Information and Analysis finds that black patients account for over 12 percent of emergency room visits. That figure comes despite the group being only about 6 percent of the population. Data show that black patients were also more likely to come back to the hospital. The mayor of Haverhill is hoping to get more than $8 million in flood damage assistance for his city. That damage was caused by storms on August 8th. The mayor tells the Eagle Tribune he believes the state will help when it comes to money for repairing the city's infrastructure. He's not so sure about financial help for homeowners. The neighboring city of North Andover is asking the state for $30 million in help. A group of bicyclists today will begin a trek from Maine to Boston. The seven will travel 320 miles to raise awareness about child sex trafficking. Haywood Talcove says the 320 miles represents the 320,000 children trafficked every year. Talcove says now with the Internet, parents need to watch their children even more carefully. There's a whole bunch of unsavory characters that are trying to interact with your children. And what I'm hoping is the money that we raise can be used to improve their education, parents and children, as well as help the caseworkers when a child does get in trouble. Talcove is hoping to raise a million dollars for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The ride will end Friday at Fenway Park. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. The Red Sox lost to the Astros for the second straight game. The final last night in Houston was 7-3. Boston remains five games out of a wildcard spot in the American League. The Sox and Astros will play again tonight. The team from Smithfield, Rhode Island, is headed home from the Little League World World Series. The squad was eliminated last night by the team from California, 9-3. Mid-70s and clear skies today. Temperatures fall to around 60 tonight. Tomorrow, a few clouds move in. We'll have a mostly sunny day back in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Three years ago, authorities foiled a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Prosecutors charged 14 men they describe as anti-government extremists. Several were tried and convicted. Now a final trial is underway. Now this morning in Michigan, attorneys will present opening statements against the last three defendants. Michael Livingston of Interlochen Public Radio is covering the story. Michael, what was the plot? Sure. This all kind of started at the height of the pandemic when Governor Whitmer put restrictions in place, closing down schools, businesses, that sort of thing. And she got a lot of scorn because of it, not too different to what we saw from leaders in other states. And as this anti-government 
attitude was sort of growing in Michigan, Whitmer came under target by a group of what the government calls extremists. And we all got word that this growing plot to kidnap and maybe even kill her was squashed in October 2020 because the FBI was able to infiltrate the group with informants. And when the court records were unsealed, that's when we learned just how mobilized they actually were. They had purchased weapons, did stakeouts, and held meetings. Javed Ali, a professor at University of Michigan who specializes in national security, says it was all shocking. We haven't really seen anything like that from a pure domestic terrorism perspective in this country in a long, long time. And of course, today, a jury will start heading, uh, hearing the state's case against these men. All right. Nine people already been convicted. Uh, what can you tell us about these three and the case against them? Right. So we're looking at Eric Moulter and twin brothers, Michael and William Null. They are the last group of defendants of that original 14 that were accused. And they're each charged with providing material support for terrorist acts and possessing a firearm while committing a felony. Prosecutors are trying to convince the jury that these men you know, did cause harm. They're expected to bring in undercover FBI agents, police officers, other officials to try to make that point. And the defense is in an interesting position because while some of the other defendants in the past who've gone to trial have argued that the FBI pushed them to act, the judge in this case has already ruled the defense can't talk about entrapment. So we'll have to wait to hear what new arguments they could bring up. Are any of the people who were tried earlier expected to testify? Not really. There were two other men that were supposed to go to trial in Antrim County, but they pled guilty in recent months. And even though it was part of their agreement to testify, they weren't actually on the AG's witness list. There was also talk earlier this summer that the ringleader of the plot, Adam Fox, could be brought in to testify. He's serving time in Colorado, a 16-year sentence, but he said he'd plead the fifth if he was brought in. There are two of the supposed co-conspirators on the witness list, Ty Garbin and Caleb Franks, who were both convicted in 2020. Prosecutors say they may call them in depending on circumstances, but it's been clear from previous convictions that these undercover FBI agents have been the most valuable witnesses for prosecutors. Has Governor Whitmer said anything about these cases, reacted at all? She's not commented on this particular case, but she has given a victim impact statement during sentencing in, other, in another case related to the plot. And back in 2020, she put out a statement and called out then-President Donald Trump saying he had given, quote, comfort to those who spread fear and hatred and division. And briefly, out of curiosity, how closely are people in Michigan following this? You know, these court proceedings have been going on for three years now. And while this is an important verdict that we'll get at the end of this, people aren't exactly on the edge of their seats in Michigan. It'll be interesting to see you know, how Michigan moves on from this. That's Michael Livingston with Interlochen Public Radio in Michigan. Michael, thanks. You're welcome. The company considered by many bicyclists to be the Tesla of e-bikes has gone bankrupt. VanMoof is a Dutch startup. Its bikes became famous for their sleek design, their ease of use through an app on your smartphone, and their hipster appeal. But the company lost money as their products often broke down. Now, NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Amsterdam that the company's downfall has left customers stranded. More than two-thirds of the population of Amsterdam commutes to work on two wheels. Some prefer to do it in style. And I think one of the most things I really appreciate of the bike is having a boost button. Brian Reutekamp's favorite feature of his Van Moof bike is the boost button. When pressed, it delivers a jolt of speed to pass others on his way to work at his startup in downtown Amsterdam. He also likes its built-in alarm that alerts you via your Van Moof app when someone's messing with your bike. Here you go. 
Guttekamp bought his Van Moof nine months ago for around $4,000. It's a sleek, powder-blue minimalist machine whose battery, motherboard, e-shifter, and SIM card, yeah, these bikes use GPS, are all engineered to fit snugly inside its aluminum alloy frame. Now that Van Moof has gone bankrupt, Ruttekamp is reconsidering his purchase. I enjoyed it really much, and now I'm a bit scared of what's going to happen when I do have any issues. Because not all the parts are built anymore, so if something breaks like the e-shifter, then or you have to find another Vanmoof bike who wants to share your e-shifter, or, uh, yeah, uh, you're screwed. A few canals away at a bike repair shop, Joram Hato says he refuses to repair Van Moofs. Because they're impossible to repair, because they're so sealed off with their own equipment that nobody else except them can fix it. Hartog says he'll only agree to fix Van Moof tires because the brand's engineers made it near impossible to open the frame that contains all the parts. All bike brands have a certain standard and they went around every standard that was available because they didn't want to do anything with regular bike parts. So now they created everything themselves and it keeps breaking because, yeah, they want to over-design it. He says Van Moof's creators envisioned themselves like Apple, a unique product that would spawn its own ecosystem. But he says the company ran out of money because, unlike Apple, Van Moof products often broke and their maintenance shops could not keep up. Their phone is ringing like every second. All, all day it's ringing. Bike repairman Tamor Hartogs, no relation to Yoram, was a maintenance contractor of Van Moof until the company went bankrupt. With Van Moof no longer paying him to fix bikes under warranty, he's left renegotiating repairs with individual customers. Without access to Van Moof parts, he's only been able to take out the company's patented cylindrical batteries by carefully breaking them apart and installing new internal components. I can cry in a corner, but uh, I just thought, let's work hard and uh, let's make some new money. <laughs> he knows Van Moof's creators are in talks to sell their defunct company, but he says if that happens, he doesn't think the new owners will pay his bills. When asked for comment, Van Moof's global head of communications said, quote, I'm afraid I can't make anyone available, seeing that we're all fired except for the founders. Aside a bike lane in Amsterdam, Van Moof biker Brian Reuterkamp has a new accessory, a thick bike lock chain he's carried around since the bankruptcy. Protection against other Van Moof bike owners. I've heard a lot of stories that they look for bikes to get their own bike fixed and steal it. And now, because you don't have any insurance anymore. And should his bike's internal alarm go off while someone's trying to steal his bike for parts, there is no longer anyone on the other end of that Van Moof app who's listening. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Amsterdam. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBOR on this Wednesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, pointing to his high polling numbers, former President Donald Trump says he's skipping tonight's first Republican presidential debate and instead has recorded an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Clear skies in mid-70s today. It falls to, to around 60 tonight. Back to the mid-70s tomorrow and it'll be mostly sunny. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 
New state data show the area, including Lowell, Billerica, and Chelmsford, lost more jobs last month compared to anywhere else in the state. The state's Office of Labor and Workforce Development says the area lost about 2 percent of jobs in July. Meanwhile, the area, including Peabody, Salem, and Beverly, had the highest employment gains. Jobs there were up nearly 4 percent last month. Overall, Massachusetts unemployment slightly decreased to around 2.5 percent in July. Members of the Teamsters Union in New England have overwhelmingly approved a historic new UPS contract. Officials with Teamsters Local 25 say more than 83 percent of members voted in favor. The deal includes higher wages for both full-time and part-time UPS workers. It also creates more workplace protections, including air conditioning and delivery vans. Google is planning to open one of its first retail stores in Boston. Sources close to the matter tell the Boston Business Journal the store will open at the new development at the intersection of Newbury and Dartmouth Streets. It'll sell Google products, including phones and tablets. It's 744. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Most abortions in the U.S. still happen in clinics, but some patients must be treated in a hospital because their medical conditions put them at high risk. Now that more than a dozen states ban abortions, some of those high-risk patients are crossing state lines for care. From member station WBEZ in Chicago, Kristen Schorsch explains what's at stake for both these patients and the hospitals they visit. The patient was about 22 weeks pregnant when she learned her baby boy was in grave danger. He didn't have kidneys, and his lungs wouldn't develop. If he survived birth, he would struggle to breathe and die within hours. She says when she found out, she didn't stop crying for weeks. The whole world felt heavy. You don't think straight. You don't understand. Not something anybody should have to go through. It's not easy losing somebody you love. This patient lives in Missouri which is one of the strictest abortion bans in the nation. We're not using her name because she's afraid of repercussions in her community or being harmed if anyone were to find out. After the diagnosis, doctors told this patient her life was not in immediate danger. But they also pointed out the risks of staying pregnant. And in her family, there's a history of hemorrhaging while giving birth. They said if I start having heavy bleeding, they would have to remove my uterus. And that scared me a lot because... I want to have more kids. She decided to end the pregnancy. Her doctors in Missouri told her it was the safest option, but they would not do it. 
Doctors in states with bans are afraid of losing their licenses or going to jail. That's despite the fact that all of the state abortion bans have exceptions to save the life of the mother, including Missouri's. Still, doctors are sending patients with life-threatening complications out of state. Many end up at hospitals in Illinois. Dr. Laura Larson works at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. I'm constantly hearing stories from my partners across the country of trying to figure out, like, what counts as imminent danger, right? Because our job is do no harm, and we're trying to prevent danger. We're not trying to get to the point where someone's, you know, an emergency. Compared to a year ago, her hospital now provides four times as many abortions for out-of-state patients. Larson treated the patient from Missouri. You know, she told me that she was very frustrated about all the hoops that she had to go through to get care here. The cost of the procedure was extremely stressful to her. For one, there's the travel, and health insurance doesn't always pay. An abortion in a clinic can cost $500, but it's much more expensive at a hospital. For the Missouri patient, it was $6,000. Abortion funds stepped in and covered her bills. But Dr. Larson worries how long these funds can help. I think we can sit there and ask why aren't the hospitals picking up the cost, but why aren't the insurance companies from the out-of-state picking up the cost either? It's like, whose responsibility is this, right? Chicago OBGYN Dr. Jonah Fleischer has another worry. The high-risk patients he will never see. The ones who live in banned states, but never make it to his hospital. More than the stress of somebody who's actually making it to see me, that's the thing that causes me more stress. He knows if some of those patients don't have an abortion, there's a greater chance they could die giving birth or afterwards. I won't know who they are, but statistically I know that it's going to happen. The Missouri patient is now back home and still mourning her loss. But she's also angry. There's a lot of good people out there who go through a lot of unfortunate situations like me who need abortion care. And to have that taken away by the government, it just doesn't feel right. For NPR News, I'm Kristen Schorsch in Chicago. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WBEZ and KFF Health News. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the new Star Wars series starring Rosario Dawson as the Jedi Ahsoka premiered last night. We'll look at how Disney marketed the show amidst an entertainment industry strike. It's 749. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Eight Republican presidential hopefuls will face off for their first debate tonight, but former president and frontrunner Donald Trump will not attend. Opening statements begin today in the trial of three men accused of a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And an Indian lunar vehicle is less than an hour away from an an attempt to complete the country's first-ever moon landing. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zeus and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. And Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, 
advising academic medical centers and health care providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Sunny skies today and temperatures will rise to the mid-70s. It falls to around 60 tonight. Then tomorrow, a few clouds move in. We'll have a mostly sunny day and it'll be back in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Authorities in Maui have released a new number of those who are still unaccounted for from the wildfires. About 1,000 people. That number has fluctuated in recent days as names have been taken off and added. NPR's Greg Allen reports officials are trying to dispel some of the confusion. It's a large number. The FBI says somewhere between 1,000 and 1,100 names are on the list. But it's been compiled from a variety of sources. A task force of agents from the FBI and local police departments have been going through it. But Maui Police Chief John Pelletier says much of the information is still spotty. Some of them have first names only. And there's no contact number back. So there was a, uh, John's missing. We try to call back who said that. Nobody's answering. And so we're trying to scrub this to make it as accurate as we can. It's not unusual to have a large number of people unaccounted for after a disaster. So far, officials here have resisted calls to make the names public, in part because the list is so unverified. But it's a step they say they're hoping to take soon. Yesterday, authorities held a news conference to ask people with missing family members to file reports with the police and to provide DNA swabs to aid in victim identification. A company that specializes in rapid DNA identification says it's retrieved usable DNA from three-quarters of the remains so far. Just 104 family members have come forward to provide DNA samples. Andrew Martin, Maui's prosecuting attorney who's heading the effort to collect DNA from family members, says that's lower than what's been seen in other disasters. As to why that is, I can only speculate. I want to make sure that we reassure people that by coming in and providing a DNA sample, the only purpose for which it will be used is helping identify the unaccounted for. So far, more than a third of the victims have been identified, but only about half of their names have been made public. Police Chief Pelletier says it's important to first notify the next of kin. We're trying diligently to be as respectful as we possibly can, and here's why. I think they've suffered enough. Meanwhile, crews are still looking for victims in Lahaina. They've completed their search of the single-story residential properties and are now working on multi-story buildings in the last area remaining. Greg Allen, NPR News, Maui. Human rights groups say the Tunisian government has driven African migrants into the desert that borders Libya and left them without food or water. This is the testimony from migrants from Cameroon, Sudan, and other African countries, and activists say dozens have died in the dunes. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has a story. Desert all around them, huddling under the only tree, desperate families beg for water. Water, 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 water. One man struggles for breath. People are dying, says another. This video was shared by Human Rights Watch, who says Tunisia has forced over 1,300 African migrants into the desert between Tunisia and Libya and left them there. 
Tunisia has said it allows legal immigration and denies these claims of dumping migrants, calling it misinformation. But the accounts of men like Mbenga Nimbilo from Cameroon challenge that. He says Tunisian police arrested him and his wife, Matila Dosso, and their six-year-old daughter, Marie. They beat us. They broke our phones and took away our IDs. They loaded us into a pickup truck and drove us into the desert. They told us to go to Libya and never to return to Tunisia. They said, this is not a country for blacks. The family became separated when Nimbilo collapsed in the extreme heat, but told his wife and daughter to go on with others. He was later found by two Sudanese migrants who gave him water, and he did eventually reach Libya. There, he excitedly searched for Matila and Marie. I wanted to surprise them. When they had left me, I was in such a desperate state that we didn't think we'd see each other again. I thought I was going to die. But for days, Nimbilo couldn't find them. Then a friend showed me the photo on his phone. The photo, published on a Facebook page, showed his wife and daughter dead in the desert. Six-year-old Marie is still curled in towards her mom on the sand. Lost in the vast expanse of no-man's land between Tunisia and Libya, they'd succumbed to the heat and dehydration. It was a terrible end to a years-long effort to find a safe home. We were connected to Nimbilo by a migration activist who's helping him reach journalists to tell his story. Salsa Bilchilali, the Tunisia director of Human Rights Watch, says she knows of at least 28 migrants who've died in the desert after being expelled from Tunisia. The Tunisian police, the military and the National Guard have really abused migrants verbally, physically, with beating, use of excessive force. She says these expulsions of migrants are a consequence of President Kais Saeed saying in a speech that black migrants are part of a plot to overwhelm Tunisia and change its demographic makeup. This was followed by violence against black Tunisians and migrants in the country. The European Union recently committed millions of dollars to Saeed's government to try to stop an increase in illegal migration from Tunisia to Europe. But Shalali says Saeed's statements actually fuel migration. So even those who were not planning to cross to Europe are actually leaving because they're fearing for their life. We collected testimonies of people that actually crossed to Europe after this speech because they didn't want to stay in Tunisia, even if before they weren't thinking about leaving. We reach by phone a fisherman in the coastal city of Sfax who says he's seeing firsthand this rush of migrants to escape the country. He asks we only use his first name, Ali, because he worries that speaking with the media could get him in trouble with the Tunisian authorities. He says migrants have left the city to hide out in rural areas until they can board a smuggler's boat. They're living in the dirt under olive trees. They beg for money. They beg for food. They live in miserable conditions. I just saw a guy begging and I was going to help him, but then a police car came by, so I continued on. I didn't want to have any issues with the police. He says the migrants he meets are terrified and entirely dependent on the help of Tunisian citizens like him. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Mid-70s and clear skies today. Temperatures fall to around 60 tonight and skies stay clear. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-70s. Showers are likely on Friday. It'll be in the low 70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Frontrunner Donald Trump will skip tonight's first Republican presidential primary debate, but is expected to be a hot topic among the eight candidates on stage. It's Wednesday, August 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, there are growing fears among residents in Maui that developers will buy up land after the recent wildfires. Disaster capitalism at its finest. You know, we've had families reached out by real estate interests offering cash for their properties. It's just disgusting. Also, a White House border strategy that gives more migrants a legal pathway to the U.S. is going on trial. And this hour, a new program that promises to be the most affordable student debt repayment plan ever is drawing fire from conservatives. If you borrow $10,000, you'll only pay back $6,200 on average. That doesn't sound like a loan program. Sunny in mid-70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Eight candidates are expected to be on stage tonight in Wisconsin for the first Republican presidential debate of the 2024 campaign. Former President Donald Trump remains the frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination, but as NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, Trump's skipping this initial debate. Republicans plan to hold their national convention in Milwaukee as well next year, but the city and state is not just important to Republicans. President Biden was in Milwaukee last week touting his economic record. Wisconsin is a state that is truly up for grabs. In 2016, Trump won by fewer than 25,000 votes. Four years later, Biden did the same thing. NPR's Franco Ordonez reporting. Trump is expected to be in Georgia tomorrow to surrender to authorities in Fulton County. He's one of 19 people indicted there for allegedly trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in that state. Two weeks after a wildfire destroyed the community of Lahaina and killed at least 115 people, recovery in West Maui is a struggle. And here's Greg Allen reports many are still without power and water is unsafe even for bathing. Residents are being warned that water is contaminated with benzene and other chemicals. At the first meeting since the fire of the Maui County Council, Tamara Palton, who represents the Lahaina area, said for many power is still out and phone coverage is spotty. The people in West Maui can't see this meeting. The people in West Maui don't know what's going on. And if we're doing things for them, we need to be doing things with them. Addressing fears about redevelopment, Palton said Lahaina is not for sale. She's calling for financial assistance for businesses and residents and a temporary moratorium on foreclosures. Greg Allen, NPR News, Maui. 
China will conduct live fire drills in waters near Taiwan starting tomorrow. This comes as Taiwan commemorates the anniversary of bloody fighting between Taiwan and China's armies in 1958. NPR's Emily Fang has more. China says it will hold two days of live fire drills off the coast of its Fujian province, right across the water from Taiwan. The news comes as Taiwan's president and several politicians travel to Taiwanese islands very close to Fujian in order to remember a brutal artillery battle with China that happened 65 years ago. The Chinese live fire drills come on top of short military exercises this past weekend around Taiwan. Exercises China said were to warn the island not to entertain the idea of formally stating it is separate from China. Military tensions have briefly flared up between China and Taiwan a handful of times in the last 70 years, but have most recently been heating up for the last year. Emily Fang, Pure News, Taipei. U.S. futures contracts are trading in positive territory at this hour. All three major indices are up about one-tenth of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. In Zimbabwe, elections to choose local councillors, parliamentarians, and a president are underway. The U.S. State Department is urging the government and all political leaders to ensure the elections are free of violence and coercion. Ishma Fundikwa has more. The statement expressed concern about political violence and legislation curtailing human rights and freedoms enshrined in Zimbabwe's constitution in the lead-up to the elections. It also condemns the denial and delays of accreditation for several international journalists, domestic civil society members, and election observers to cover and observe the elections. Voting is taking place amidst tight security with the police enlisting prison officers to help keep the peace. For NPR News, I am Ishma Fundikwa in Harare. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says a salmonella outbreak linked to small turtles has left more than two dozen people across 16 states sick. Federal law bans the sale and distribution of turtles with shells less than four inches long as pets because they do cause a lot of illnesses. But even so, they do get sold and they do get into people's homes. Now public health officials are warning people if they have one of the tiny turtles to not kiss it or cuddle it. Crude oil futures are trading lower at this hour, down nearly 1.5% at $78.47 a barrel. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher. Asian markets higher by the close. The Nikkei in Japan up a half percent. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The right to repair law in Massachusetts is one step closer to going into effect. The law requires car makers to give independent repair shops wireless access to car computer information. It was recently blocked by federal regulators. But now the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says granting access to that information in a, quote, close physical location to a car would comply with cybersecurity concerns. Tommy Hickey is the director of the Right to Repair Coalition. He says there's more work to do. It looks like this is a good first step in conversations with NHTSA in terms of showing how important it is to implement this law that 75% of Massachusetts voted in favor for and maintain a level playing field for independent repair shops and car dealerships. It's unclear if or when manufacturers would need to start complying with the law. That law was approved by voters in 2020. 
The city of Worcester is getting more than $4 million to get rid of lead paint. City leaders say the federal grant is the largest single chunk of money they've ever received to address the hazard. The money will cover repairs in 165 low-income housing units. Worcester is rated as a high-risk community in the state for childhood lead poisoning. The city of Chelsea has unveiled a new bus ramp designed to make it easier for passengers to get on and off. The ramp is on the corner of Broadway and 3rd Street. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports it isn't just practical, it's also pretty to look at. The new ramp essentially extends the sidewalk so riders can board buses seamlessly. The city partnered with local organizations to beautify the bus stop with an installation of planters filled with flowers and trees. Members of the nonprofit La Colaborativa's Youth Jobs Program helped paint the planters. 17-year-old Abraham Pereira was one of them. I feel like, you know, just making this the community look better is also like another way of protecting it, kind of, you know, improves people's lives just by seeing, you know, pretty things on the way to work. The installation will be in place through the fall. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. The Red Sox lost to the Astros 7-3 last night in Houston. The teams will meet again tonight. Sunny today, it'll be in the mid-70s, clear overnight with a low near 60, increasing clouds tomorrow and back to the mid-70s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Residents of Lahaina in Maui say they're worried about real estate developers scooping up land after the recent wildfires. Last week, some community members held a press conference calling on Hawaii Governor Josh Green to protect Lahaina from what they describe as predatory development. The community is still reeling from the loss, and many people are still displaced from their homes. The governor's plan to rebuild the community must be based on the needs of the people, not the interests of developers. That's Lahaina resident Tiari Lawrence speaking at last week's press conference. She's part of Naohana Olele, a coalition of community members who say they're worried about Lahaina being rebuilt without the buy-in of local residents. Tiari Lawrence joins us now. Good morning. Aloha. You mentioned predatory development in that press conference. If you could describe what is happening that's making you concerned. Well, disaster capitalism at its finest. You know, we've had families reached out by real estate interests offering cash for their properties. You know, it's just disgusting. And we're a tight-knit community. Of course, in Hawaii, the cost of living is so high. Mm. And as Native Hawaiians, we've been displaced for generations. So when people come in and they want to take away from us, it just continues the displacement and genocide, especially of the Native Hawaiian people. So they're taking advantage of this moment? Yes, absolutely. Your coalition has called on Hawaiian Governor Josh Green to meet three demands for Lahaina's recovery. If you could describe what those are. Most importantly, the demands was to ensure that the community have a seat at the table on what happens to our town. We don't want government to come in and decide what's best for us or how our town should look. It's the people who should decide for themselves what our town will look like. And so we have grave concerns that they're just going to come in, build all this housing, and then not think about what happens in the future. What impact will that have on our water resources? So, you know, just 
Fast tracking development is not a good way of developing houses. It needs to be thought out, holistic and sustainable mm. um, with the people involved in the process. So really what you're worried about is that the people that are from Lahaina, who've lived there for generations, indigenous communities, will be displaced or priced out of their own city in the process of redevelopment. Yes, I mean, it'll take years. You know, you're looking at at least two to three years just to clean up alone. That's not even talking about rebuilds. I mean, you know, we're looking four or five years maybe at the earliest before anybody can build their first home. And so, you know, unfortunately, I already know people that have jumped on a plane and moved to the continent, moved to America. And it's frustrating and it's heartbreaking because these are people of our community. And I'm worried that they won't come back home because it's the people that make Lahaina special. We're, we're challenged with that situation. But we can't tell them they can't leave, right? They've, they're traumatized. There's nothing left here. But we have to work towards making it easier for them to come back home. And when the time comes, streamlining that process for them to rebuild on their property. Will your coalition be working with the governor as this long-term process goes on? We will be doing everything we possibly can to hold the government accountable. But we do hope that he allows a seat for us at the table, um, you know, because we are Lahaina. We represent the community and it's better to work with us than work against us. You know, we are lawyered up. We are ready to fight with all of our hearts and so to protect Lahaina. And so we're ready for the long haul. Um, I know for people like myself and other members of our coalition, this is our life mission. We have taken on this kuleana and responsibility and we're going to follow through not only for ourselves, but for our children and future generations of Lahaina. Tiari Lawrence is part of the Naohana Olele, a coalition of community members in Lahaina. Thank you so much for your time. Mahalo nui, aloha. Tonight on Fox News, anchors Brett Baer and Martha McCallum will moderate a debate with eight of the leading Republican candidates for president in next year's elections. Former President Donald Trump will not be among them. Instead, he taped an interview with Fox's former star, Tucker Carlson, that'll post on X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik joins us now. David, okay, first things first, why isn't Trump taking part of the debate? Well, the first answer is probably pretty obvious. He is such a commanding lead in key states that are going to start unfurling early next year in the Republican primary process that his advisor is telling me he doesn't need to. He's also professed a lot of anger at Fox over the years and more recently over an interview done by Brett Baer. Initially, Trump liked it, said he it was terrific. And then as people started pointing out, his answers seemed to expose him to additional legal jeopardy in that question of his handling of national security papers filed by the feds in Florida. He turned angrily against it on social media. And he's been frustrated with Fox News over uh, the interest of its controlling owner and founder, Rupert Murdoch, his interest in other Republican candidates. All right. So let's talk about all three, Fox, Murdoch and Trump. Uh, What are the tensions there? Murdoch always wants somebody he can do business with, a candidate that he can embrace who's going to be a winner, but that also will be amenable. In 2016, he definitely wanted other folks. But ultimately, as Trump just knocked one contender out after another, he embraced Trump and he needed that winner in office. Why? Well, it helped him on a lot of things, including big business deals. Think of when he sold off a lot of Fox's assets to Disney. That could have been easily held up by a lot of antitrust concerns. Donald Trump called him that morning and congratulated him, asking him only, you know, are you going to hold on to Fox News, which of course he did. And then there was the Dominion case. In 2020, Trump lied publicly and said, you know, I've been cheated of this election when Joe Biden won. 
and a number of Fox stars embraced it. Fox ultimately had to pay almost $800 million in a defamation case filed by an election tech company over that. So Murdoch this time around has been searching for another candidate fixed on Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, as he's been flagging in the polls. Murdoch's casting about maybe for Glenn Youngkin. He's the governor of Virginia. All right. So Tucker Carlson and the interview with him, what to expect there? Let's not forget, Carlson has his own grievances here. Fox ousted him right after the Dominion settlement this past spring, yet he's still under contract. Carlson is using this opportunity to get attention and refuse to be sidelined. He very much wants to be relevant in this political cycle to keep himself as part of the game. So they're setting low expectations then for ratings without Trump on stage and in the spotlight. I mean, are they lobbying to try and get him on board? Well, you've seen top executives, including Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott, who went with a top deputy to Trump's golf course in New Jersey. The anchor Brett Bayer and Trump have spoken several times by phone. And on the air, Fox stars are all but beseeching him. Most recently, Kayleigh McEnany. That's Trump's former press secretary turned Fox pundit. Here's what she had to say yesterday. Two hours of attacks. You will get attacked even if you're not there. And no one can answer those attacks better than President Donald Trump himself. He's really good at it. He's masterful. She's making the argument that not only is he yielding the floor, but he's allowing President Biden to justify ducking baits later next year, trying to goad Trump effectively to make a surprise appearance. All right. So what should we uh, look out for from Donald Trump? So think back eight years ago in 2015, Trump participated in the first debate, August 2015. It was moderated by Fox News. Ten candidates on stage. What did he do? He went after Megyn Kelly, the moderator. He made it about him versus Fox icing out the other candidates. This time, Trump is going to try to step on this debate every way he can from offstage. He's even going to the lengths tomorrow morning to go through processing for all those felonies he's charged with in Atlanta, in Fulton County, Georgia, on allegations he interfered with the elections in that state in 2020. It'll blot out the sky and make it very hard for other candidates to burst through the next day. All right, that's NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. David, thanks. You bet. The Federal Aviation Administration has taken on a string of near misses on the runway and will draw attention to safety in dozens of meetings at about 90 U.S. airports. Southwest abort. FedEx is on the go. That's what it sounded like back on February 4th for the pilot of a Southwest Airlines flight. The plane had been cleared to take off from Austin. A FedEx cargo plane had been told to use the same runway and could have landed on the passenger plane with 131 people on board if it hadn't changed course. It's one of multiple serious close calls tracked by the FAA this year. Andrew Tangle's on the line. He's an aviation reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Andrew, the FAA tracks these near misses on the ground and in the air. How has this year been different? The FAA classifies these incidents with different ranks of seriousness. And earlier this year, there was a spate of close calls at runways uh, around the country uh, that were the most serious that the FAA tracks. And so regulators were alarmed enough to put the focus on these so-called runway incursions. They held a big meeting in the Washington, D.C. area. They brought in airlines, pilots, airport operators to try to figure out what's going on. And these forthcoming meetings at U.S. airports are an extension of that effort. All right. So how are these meetings going to achieve what the FAA wants, which is zero close calls? They're ultimately trying to tell everyone in the industry to keep their head in the game and be extra vigilant about safety issues. They are trying to figure out what happened in each of these closed calls. They are also trying to figure out what could tie them all together systemically, what could be the underlying 
cause. They're trying to understand why there are these mistakes, either by pilots or air traffic controllers, what have you. The industry in the U.S. has all but eliminated major fatal airline crashes. Uh, there hasn't been one with a major U.S. airline uh, in the past 14 years, which is remarkable by historical standards. And now suddenly things are getting way too close and they're trying to figure out why and keep it from even getting that close. So these close calls, the high number of these near misses, is it possibly because of increased traffic after the pandemic? That is one of the concerns. There are a lot more airplanes to manage flying around, adding to the stress of an already constrained system. Air traffic control towers are understaffed. There are younger and newer members of the workforce, not only in air traffic control, but also at airlines in the cockpit. The pilots are facing new pressures. You know, the traditional career path has been accelerated given there were so many retirements during the pandemic when nobody was flying. And suddenly you've got younger pilots progressing to bigger planes, becoming captain in command of new airplanes that they are less experienced dealing with than maybe a counterpart might have been 10 or 15 years ago. All right, that's The Wall Street Journal's Andrew Tangle. Andrew, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, conservatives are blasting a new Biden administration program that some say could be the most affordable student debt repayment plan ever. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. How do you find deep happiness? Researcher Dacher Keltner says, find awe. Awe, as powerfully as any state you can pinpoint, shifts you to being open and engaged and curious about the world. The science behind why we all need to seek and experience more awe. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A high near 75 today under sunny skies. Tonight it stays clear as temperatures fall to a low around 60. Tomorrow mostly sunny and a high back near 75. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com. From Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. One of the big newsmakers in the entertainment industry this week is entrepreneur Scooter Braun who discovered a young Justin Bieber once upon a time. His other clients include Carly Rae Jepsen, the K-pop star Psy, 
and the Black Eyed Peas. But some high-profile artists are cutting ties with them. Demi Lovato is out, and multiple media outlets cite sources saying Ariana Grande is out too. We don't know why they're leaving Braun, but it's an occasion to talk about his influence. So we brought in Elizabeth Blair from NPR's Culture Desk. Good morning. Good morning. For those who don't follow the industry, who is he? Scooter Braun is one of the most powerful players in entertainment. He's been an entrepreneur ever since college at Emory University. He sold fake IDs. Hmm. He promoted these epic parties that attracted stars in hip hop and sports. He quit Emory and eventually started his own entertainment management business. And he's known for spotting and nurturing young talent like Ariana Grande. Last year, he talked to the NPR podcast, The Limits with Jay Williams, about the first time he heard Justin Bieber. It's almost like falling in love. It's like when it happens, you feel like this sensation inside of you of like, okay, I know what this is. I saw clearly that he could be one of the biggest artists in the world and one of the biggest artists ever. I was just like, I know what to do. I know how to help him because he had this natural God-given talent. But now the media outlet Puck is reporting that even Justin Bieber might be leaving Braun's company. Uh, This is a guy who has been famous for feuding with artists as well as nurturing them. I'm thinking particularly of Taylor Swift. Yes, that's that's the main one. Um, in 2019, Braun's company bought the record label that signed Swift when she was a teenager. That deal turned into something of a war between him and Swift. There was already some bad blood between them because at one point Braun supported Kanye West when he and Swift had a falling out. But basically the feud was over artistic control. When Braun bought Big Machine Records, he owned the master recordings of Swift's first six albums. Um, I'm just, you know, admiring the the reference to bad blood there. Well done. Great job. Um, So owning master recordings means owning all the rights to the music, which is not something that Taylor liked at all. No, and even though it's traditionally that's how it works, labels have owned the master recordings of their artists. But Swift was really angry. She claimed that she was blocked from performing her old songs. And what did Braun have to say about that? He told Variety that her reaction made him sad, but that it was not factual. And some artists like Justin Bieber came to his defense. Okay, so we have a picture of this man in his tumultuous career, and now some big artists seem to be leaving him. Do we have any idea why that might be? We don't know why. Um, I reached out for comment from Braun and Grande, but did not hear back. A source confirmed to NPR that Lovato has left, but did not say why. Um, We do know that Braun's reputation is mixed. Depending on who you talk to, he's either a stalwart champion of artists or a ruthless businessman. Um, Sources tell Variety that the departures have more to do with Braun stepping back from day-to-day management duties. A couple of years ago, his firm was bought by Hybe, the South Korean company behind BTS. And Braun is now CEO of Hybe America. Hmm. We might know more in the coming days. Okay, we'll keep listening for your reporting. NPR's Elizabeth Blair, thanks. You're welcome. It's the dawn of a new Star Wars series. Last night, Disney Plus began streaming its new live-action story, Ahsoka. When the stakes are this high, we have to do what's right. Rosario Dawson, who stars as a warrior from a distant planet, cannot promote the series during the actors and screenwriters strike in Hollywood. But as NPR's Manalita del Barco reports, fans are still celebrating. At the heart of Star Wars are stories about training to control the powerful energy known as the Force. Always two there are. A master and an apprentice. Way back in 1977, Jedi Masters Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi instructed Luke Skywalker. Remember, a Jedi can feel the Force flowing through him. 
Obi-Wan also coached Luke's father, Anakin Skywalker. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, God. And before becoming the villain Darth Vader, Anakin guided Ahsoka Tano. Trust your instincts. I know you can do this, Ahsoka. Ahsoka started out in 2008 as an animated character in the series The Clone Wars, and a few years later she was part of Star Wars Rebels. Then she became a live-action character played by Rosario Dawson in The Mandalorian in 2020 and in last year's The Book of Boba Fett. Now Ahsoka has her own series with her former protege Sabine Wren. There is nothing easy about being a Jedi. In a video taped long before the Hollywood strikes, showrunner Dave Filoni talked about the character he developed with his guide, Star Wars creator George Lucas. I'm telling the story about this mentor-student relationship that passes from Anakin to Ahsoka to Sabine. A special showing of Ahsoka in Hollywood last week was packed with costume Star Wars fans waving lightsabers. Among them was 62-year-old Marine safety specialist Patricia Burns in a custom-made Sith Empress gown. Yes, I've embraced the dark side. Come on and join us. We have cookies. Trevor Grant, a fire chief in Canada, was dressed as the evil Grand Admiral Thrawn with blue face paint and red contact lenses. Eight-year-old Julio Guzman was a pint-sized Thrawn, and his two-year-old sister Kira was a baby Ahsoka. And 25-year-old Claire Puxta painted her face orange with white markings and wore a blue and white headpiece. I am dressed as Ahsoka from Star Wars The Clone Wars Season 7, The Battle of Mandalore. <laughs> she first premiered when I was eight years old. She unfortunately wasn't particularly popular when she came out, but I think that was the genius of Dave Filoni. He created a character that was flawed and needed time to grow from this like impetuous young woman that was a little too brazen, a little all over the place, to a very confident and strong warrior. Fans like Anna Ferrer Jenkins, dressed as a space witch, said they understood why the cast of Ahsoka couldn't join them while on strike against the Hollywood studios for higher pay and residuals and protections from AI. They're doing the right thing. I think the fandom themselves will do what they can to promote and support this series. And clearly, as you can see with the turnout here, the force was with everyone. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. The Force is with NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBWAR's Morning Edition. The Biden administration is preparing to defend in court its use of an authority known as parole. Officials have been using that authority to admit large numbers of non-citizens into the U.S. It's 829. Coming this Friday to WBWAR's City Space, the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at WBWAR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Eight candidates are expected to be on stage tonight in Wisconsin for the first Republican presidential debate of the 2024 campaign. Former President Donald Trump is skipping the event in Milwaukee. Polls show Trump leading his GOP rivals by wide margins for the party's nomination. Instead, Trump will sit down for an interview with conservative commentator Tucker Carlson. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more. The Wisconsin State Party chairman, Brian Schimming, says he remembers when Wisconsin was dismissed as flyover country. But now voters can run into presidential candidates at a convenience store. The city of Milwaukee will also host the Republican National Convention next year, a sign of the state's importance to Republicans. But it's not just Republicans. President Biden was in Milwaukee last week touting his economic record, and his campaign just released a local ad doing much of the same. Franco Ordonez. NPR News, Milwaukee. Trump is expected to appear in Georgia tomorrow to surrender to authorities in Fulton County. Trump is one of 19 people indicted there for allegedly trying to overturn the results of the state's 2020 election. More than 1,000 people are still unaccounted for in Hawaii as a result of wildfires on Maui. The FBI is asking for relatives of the missing to provide DNA samples. This is NPR News. Officials in Kyiv say a Russian drone attack at a port in southern Ukraine overnight destroyed 13,000 tons of grain. In Moscow, Russian officials are blaming Ukraine for drone attacks that left three civilians dead. Portugal's president is in Kyiv for a two-day visit to Ukraine. Alison Roberts has more. This visit, announced at the last moment for security reasons, took advantage of Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa's presence in neighbouring Poland. It follows trips to Ukraine by Portugal's prime minister and other officials. Polls show support for Ukraine in Portugal among the highest in Western Europe, with tens of thousands of refugees joining an already sizable Ukrainian community here. Ethiopia says it will work with Saudi Arabia to investigate allegations that Saudi border guards killed Ethiopian migrants. As Michael Koloki reports, the allegations were made by the group Human Rights Watch. A Human Rights Watch report claims that between March last year and June this year, Saudi Arabian border guards killed hundreds of Ethiopian migrants who tried to cross into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. Ethiopia said it will work alongside Saudi authorities to investigate the allegations. Human Rights Watch claims that the alleged killings could amount to crimes against humanity. Saudi Arabian authorities have previously rejected the allegations. Wall Street futures are higher ahead of the open. Dow futures are up four points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Two Massachusetts airports will take part in a federal initiative to increase safety. The FAA wants to find ways to cut down on close calls between planes on runways and taxiways. One of those close calls happened earlier this year at Logan Airport between a JetBlue plane and a private jet. However, Logan is not one of the airports involved. The airports in Worcester and Martha's Vineyard will take part. A prominent Boston civil rights activist says Franklin Park is still safe despite being attacked there. 92-year-old Jean McGuire was attacked while walking her dog at night last year. McGuire tells the Boston Globe that although she won't walk alone in the park anymore, the attack won't stop her from going there. McGuire was the first black woman elected to the Boston School Committee. No arrests have been made in the attack. 
As momentum builds for developing offshore wind energy in the Gulf of Maine, a proposed array of wind turbines is a step closer to regulatory approval. Murray Carpenter reports on the new decision by the Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. The state of Maine is developing the research array in partnership with New England Aquaventus. It would include up to 12 floating wind turbines 44 miles southeast of Portland, generating up to 144 megawatts of power. The federal agency determined that a research lease of up to 10,000 acres in federal waters is consistent with the Maine Coastal Zone Management Program. The lease is a preliminary step that would not authorize the placement of wind turbines, but would allow for the deployment of a meteorological ocean buoy and other activities to gather data in the lease area. The Maine Department of Environmental Protection will accept comments on the Bureau's determination by email through September 8th. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Murray Carpenter. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Red Sox fell to the Astros 7-3 last night in Houston. The Sox and Astros will play again tonight. Mid-70s and clear skies today. Temperatures fall to around 60 tonight. Tomorrow, a few clouds move in. We'll have a mostly sunny day back in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Tens of millions of borrowers who are expected to restart their student loan payments next month could be getting a break. The Education Department is starting what it's calling the most affordable repayment plan in history. So affordable that the Biden administration says many borrowers will see some or even all of their federal student loans erased. This plan is separate from the outright loan forgiveness plan that the Supreme Court struck down earlier this year. NPR's Corey Turner has been pouring through the nuts and bolts. Corey, how's this new plan going to work? Well, the idea is pretty simple, eh? The less you make, the less you pay each month. Uh, There have been other income-based plans, but this one, which they're calling the Saving on a Valuable Education Plan, or the acronym SAVE, is much more generous than everything that came before. And that's really because of three big changes. So, First, it's going to dramatically lower monthly payments for millions of borrowers. It's also going to increase the number of people who qualify to make no payments at all. Uh, Second, under older plans, borrowers who qualified for those low or even $0 monthly payments still watched interest quite often explode their loans. Now, though, as long as you're paying what the government thinks you can afford, it's going to forgive any interest that's left over each month. And then the third big change, A, is a kind of ticking clock toward forgiveness. For undergraduate borrowers who keep up with their payments for 20 years, the government promises to forgive whatever's left. That's not entirely new. What's new is if you borrowed $12,000 or less, you know, maybe for community college, you'll only have to wait 10 years, half as long. And one more thing, this is key. The administration wants to give many borrowers back credit 
for the years they've already been in repayment, which obviously would then bring them that much closer to forgiveness. Okay, so price tag, what's it going to cost? All right, so the administration projects that people will see their total payments per dollar borrowed overall cut by around 40%. So that's a lot of debt the Ed Department says it's ultimately going to be forgiving, which obviously has raised a lot of red flags, especially among conservatives. Here's Nat Malkus, who studies higher ed policy at the American Enterprise Institute. That means that if you borrow $10,000, you'll only pay back $6,200 on average. That doesn't sound like a loan program. It sounds like a quasi-grant program tacked onto the end of a loan program. Uh, I should say a, at least one estimate suggests the cost could equal or even exceed the cost of the loan forgiveness plan the Supreme Court killed, and that was around $400 billion. I have spoken with other experts, though, who say, look, these big changes in this plan are going to help millions of low-income Americans afford their debts and access college in the future. Here's Dominique Baker. She's an associate professor of education policy at Southern Methodist University. Those are things that sound kind of policy wonky. They are incredibly impactful for people's lives. Like bundled together, this is astounding. You mentioned earlier the loan forgiveness plan the Supreme Court killed. What are the chances that this will face legal challenges? I think it's inevitable it will face legal challenge, though most of the folks I've talked to about this, even those who don't like the plan, say this one is on safer legal footing. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Corey, thanks for looking into this. You're welcome, eh? There's a shortfall of doctors who are Latino. That's according to a study published in the journal Health Affairs. They are underrepresented in medical professions that require advanced degrees. Fabiola Plaza of the Latino Medical Student Association told Michelle Martin that her immigrant mother's struggle to get medical accreditation inspired her to study medicine. I watched her go through five years of failed residency applications of getting rejected everywhere until finally in 2010, she was accepted into a program. Unfortunately, that program was in Chicago while my family and I lived in Florida. Being in South Florida, there's a large Hispanic population and there's just not many Hispanic providers. And so a lot of people were able to confide in my mother and able to really establish a true connection with her. And so looking at the need for Latino doctors, I was inspired to go into medicine as well. Could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that people who are outside of this field might not understand? First, going to college itself is a huge barrier. Um, there's a large amount of classes that you have to take in order to be even considered for medical school. Besides those classes, you have to take an MCAT, and the cost to register for that exam is $350, and it's an eight-hour exam that takes months to prepare for, and there are thousands of dollars for the preparation classes. And then what about applying to schools? Are there costs associated with that? Yes. And so for me personally, I think I spent around $5,000 applying to medical school. It varies from school to school, but it costs around $120 per application. Do you think that cost is the main reason that Latinos remain so deeply underrepresented in the medical fields, especially among the physician ranks? Also, I have to point out African-Americans are too, and Latinos can be of any race. Cost is definitely a major barrier 
for entering into the medical field. But I think also the lack of representation is an endless cycle of just if you're looking into entering the medical field, you want to have mentors. There is already this lack of Latino physicians. And so there's this lack of Latino mentors that are able to help you get into this field. There's such a large rate of imposter syndrome within the Latino medical school community, just because you sit there and you just don't see anyone that looks like you and you feel like, you know, do I truly deserve to be here? What do you think it would take to improve the representation of Latino or Hispanic people in the medical field, especially at the physician level? I think it starts in the middle schools and high schools, inspiring young minds to enter into medicine through mentorship is a powerful tool. And starting at the high school level, you are then able to encourage these students and follow these students throughout their undergraduate studies and encourage them to keep pushing and to keep going to become a physician. The other thing is offering more fee waivers, offering more resources to students in order to apply for medical school and offering free courses for MCAT studying or tutoring. That was Fabiola Plaza. She's a fourth-year medical student at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra University. That's in New York. And she's the vice president of communications at the Latino Medical Student Association. Fabiola Plaza, future Dr. Plaza, good luck (laughs) with uh, everything you're doing. And thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at what we know right now about China's economy and how it might impact global markets. Clear skies in mid-70s today. It falls to around 60 tonight. Back to the mid-70s tomorrow, and it'll be mostly sunny. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, shares of Cambridge-based Fulcrum Therapeutics are up nearly 40 percent following news the FDA is lifting a clinical hold on one of its drugs. The six-month hold stopped the development of a sickle cell treatment the company is working on. The FDA said the hold was because of previously reported preclinical data. Despite the increase, shares are still about half of what they were prior to the pause. The historic Provincetown Inn is up for sale. The nearly century-old property has been appraised for nearly $14 million. Its realtors tell the Provincetown Banner interested buyers will soon have an opportunity to place bids on the inn. The six-acre property includes more than 100 guest rooms and two restaurants. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. After years of record apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border, the White House is trying a new strategy to discourage migrants from crossing the border illegally. But Texas and other states are challenging it in court. As NPR's Joel Rose reports, the case is headed to trial. It was the first week of January when the White House announced a new way for migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela to come to the U.S. legally. And Valerie Lavias wasted no time. I was like, God, you answer prayers. I am so grateful. And I jumped on it. Lavias was born in Haiti and came to the U.S. when she was 18. She is now a U.S. citizen and a teacher in South Florida. For years, Lavias has been trying to bring her brother and nephew to join her as conditions in Haiti got worse and worse. Then she found out that Texas and other states are suing to block the new program. I heard about the fact that they're trying to cancel it. My heart sunk to my feet. Finally, Lavius's brother and nephew were approved. They flew to join her in Florida earlier this month. All anybody wants who lives in unrest is to have peace, to have some family time, to be able to get the basic needs met instead of living in fear of death, fear of hunger. Lavius's brother and nephew are among the more than 180,000 migrants from Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela who have been admitted to the U.S. under the new program, with permission to live and work here for two years. The Biden administration says this is part of a broader strategy to discourage illegal immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border by opening up new legal alternatives. But the president's critics are not convinced. He's just making this up. It's his own law. His own rules. That's Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton speaking to Fox News in January, shortly before filing a lawsuit to block the new program. The Biden administration says it does have a legal basis for what it's doing, an authority known as parole. In the past, presidents of both parties have used parole to admit non-citizens into the country, sometimes in big numbers. Still, no administration has relied on parole programs quite this much to admit more than half a million people into the country, including lots of Ukrainians and Afghans. This administration has just punched through the envelope. Mark Krikorian is with the Center for Immigration Studies, a think tank in Washington that advocates for lower levels of immigration. This administration has used parole as the vehicle to create an entirely separate illegal system of admitting foreigners to the United States. Krikorian says parole was intended to give authorities some wiggle room, but it is supposed to be handed out on a case-by-case basis. The idea of using parole to admit numbers that reach the thousands is preposterous. The Biden administration insists that it is making decisions on a case-by-case basis. It's preparing to make that argument in court later this week, when a federal judge in Texas holds a crucial hearing. And the administration is getting help in the case from some of the people who've sponsored their friends and relatives from abroad. Monica Langerica is a lawyer with the UCLA Center for Immigration Law and Policy. She represents those sponsors. Not only is this entirely consistent with the law, but it's also no different from what other uh, administrations have done for years. The family members Langerica is representing include Valerie Lavias and also Herman Cadenas, a professor of psychology at Rutgers University who sponsored his uncle from Venezuela. He's just a very decent, good human being. And for me to be able to help him ease the burden that he's been under has been incredibly rewarding. And it's like the least I can do. And it's the least the country can do, Cadena says, to keep these legal pathways open. Joel Rose, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll recount the successful rescue of seven children and a teacher who were stuck for hours in a cable car dangling over a ravine in Pakistan. You'll also hear the latest on the wildfires in Greece that have killed 20 people, including 19 thought to be migrants attempting to cross through the country. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, returning to Aeronaut Brewing with a back-to-school grown-up book fair, Sunday, September 3rd from 2 to 6. Details at portersquarebooks.com. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people come to Cali, Colombia to celebrate Afro-Colombian music and culture. If we go back to the uh, slave trade days, this is people who came here against their will and who had to endure you know, many difficulties. I'm Elsa Chang, a musical postcard from the Petronio Alvarez Festival on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Eight Republican presidential candidates will meet tonight for their first debate, but former President Donald Trump will not be in attendance. Officials say the number of people missing after the wildfires in Maui has reached about 1,000. And a lunar vehicle from India has successfully landed on the moon's south pole, making it the country's first successful moon landing and the first vehicle to ever land in that area. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Sunny skies today and temperatures will rise to the mid-70s. It falls to around 60 tonight. Then tomorrow, a few clouds move in. We'll have a mostly sunny day and it'll be back in the mid-70s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. The fall TV season is almost here. An end to the Hollywood strike is not. We've got the latest... Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The latest negotiations between Hollywood studios and striking writers are spilling into the open. Major studios have released proposals that they say address the writers' concerns on things like payments from streaming and the use of artificial intelligence, the writers' union appears unimpressed. Marketplace's Nova Sappho is here with the details. Hi, Nova. Good morning, Sabri. So the Writers Guild of America has been talking again with studios for about a week now. Those negotiations are coming out. What are we learning? Yeah, uh, well, and what we're learning is that they're not close to a deal. Uh, the Writers Guild has <laughs> promised to release more details later today, but so far they've dismissed the studio's latest offer as full of loopholes and omissions. And they also criticized the Alliance for Motion Picture and Television Producers, that's the AMPTP, which represents the big studios and networks, for publicly releasing its latest proposal. It is rare for the Alliance to make public statements, so it is interesting, Sabri, that it did release its proposal publicly. The Writers Guild is accusing the studios of trying to pressure and divide striking workers. And of course, the actors are striking, too, for similar reasons. Hmm. Well, so what is the studio's latest proposal and how and how is it going down? Well, 
not going down well. The two sides met last night, and across the table from the writers were the big studio executives themselves, including Disney's Bob Iger. Most notably, they're offering writers information about what streaming shows are being watched the most. Now, that's new. Uh, they're offering writers a pay bump of 13% over three years and some concessions on material written by artificial intelligence. It's not clear what those are yet. The Writers Guild says they wanted well, they wanted to keep negotiating last night, but got a lecture instead. So, yeah, they're not close to a deal yet. Okay. Marketplace is Nova Safo. Thank you so much. You're welcome. While on the topic of labor, the Teamsters Union has voted to ratify its tentative agreement with UPS, avoiding what would have been the largest single employer strike in U.S. history. The five-year deal includes new starting hourly wages for part-timers and a $15,000 raise for full-time employees. And with that, let's do the numbers. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up around one to two-tenths percent, with Dow futures up just 30 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.285%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. It's part of who they are. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. And by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden Password Manager enables quick and easy logins through biometric unlock and password autofill. More at bitwarden.com. China's economy is growing slower than many people expected and hoped. Part of this is China's troubled property sector. It got way overbuilt, leaving a wake of debt and excess capacity. But another side of that same coin is the debt burdening China, China's local governments. For many years, local governments have financed a tremendous amount of development, and that era appears to be coming to a close. Logan Wright is a partner at Rhodium Group and is here to talk about it. Good morning. Morning, Sabri. So here in the U.S., when we think about the government stimulating or supporting the economy, we think about the federal COVID relief or federal stimulus. It comes from the national government. In China, it is not quite like that. Can you explain how it works? Right. So when China tries to use fiscal policy countercyclically to stimulate growth, they typically do it not through direct budget allocations in which the central government puts money in people's pockets, but through investment that is funded largely by local governments. You know, in some cases, you'll get direct subsidies for certain industries, but by and large, the focus of policy stimulus in China has been to deliver growth, employment, investment through either infrastructure construction of large transport, water treatment, railways, all sorts of different infrastructure concepts that have been deployed over the years, or indirectly encouraging other forms of construction like the property sector. So we have all this investment in infrastructure, in property, through local governments, and those local governments are in debt. How badly are they in debt? It has become too difficult, given the volume of local government debt, for them to continue funding investment at the same rates as they've had in the past. So it is a reasonable estimate that total local government debt is roughly around China's GDP you know, roughly around 100% of GDP or, you know, around 16, 17 trillion dollars in total. If Beijing is now possibly on the hook for all this local government debt, how does that connect with the economic malaise that the country finds itself in right now? Right. In many ways, the property market crisis in China and the local government crisis are the same crisis. And they're very much linked. They are a problem of 
Uh, you cannot continue funding the same pace of investment, whether that is in property or infrastructure, because you do not have a financial system that can continue expanding at the same rates as it has in the past, which means that if investment has been a critical driver of China's growth, it's about 42% of the economy at this point, that's going to slow down. And therefore, overall economic growth is going to slow down. And that slowdown is not cyclical, but structural. You cannot repeat the same drivers of growth as you have seen in the recent past. And so in many ways, this is the structural slowdown that China's facing. We are seeing you know, a much sharper break with past rates of economic performance relative to you know, what you saw over the previous decade. And the fact that you can't rely upon property and infrastructure investment is one of the key reasons for that. Basically, they can't get out of this economic doldrum by writing more checks. Something structural is going to have to change. To say that you're going to manage China's local government debt problem is implicitly a statement that China is going to rebalance the economy and is going to be less dependent upon investment-led growth in the future. Rebalancing the economy is a very you know, difficult prospect. It probably involves slower growth in investment in the short term, you know, hoping for more sustainable growth that is consumption-led in the medium term. But there's no guarantee that that, you know, happens at the same rates as what we've seen in the past, which is why this is such a, you know, momentous decision. And the fact that Beijing is really at the end of a previous road in terms of how to support the economy is so meaningful. Logan Wright is a partner at Rhodium Group. Logan, thank you so much. Thank you, Sabri. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Delays remain on the Fitchburg commuter rail line, but they are easing. Trains have been held up this morning because of police activity in Lincoln. The MBTA says trains are now running again. Mid-70s and clear skies today. Temperatures fall to around 60 tonight and skies stay clear. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-70s. Showers are likely on Friday. It'll be in the low 70s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston and the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.